Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the program, I'll be joined by David Bellis of Hong Kong history website Gwulo.com as he takes me to see a very old rusty tank. Such is the glamour of my job. But first, you may have heard of the British author P.G. Woodhouse. He created the comic characters Jeeves and Worcester, who regained fame in more recent years on television through the comic actors Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. Fewer people will have heard of P.G.'s father, Henry Ernest Woodhouse, who came here as a cadet for the government in the 1860s and would become a magistrate. Patricia O'Sullivan is a big P.G. Woodhouse fan, and through her research on Hong Kong law enforcement, has come to know the Woodhouse family, who were delighted to help her in her quest to research the lesser-known Woodhouse. He is the seventh of the cadets who arrived as c- cadet officers. So ad- ad- administration officers? That's right. Initially they had been recruited to become interpreters at the court. In fact, few of them had the time to be interpreters. They, they were straight into main posts. But um, Henry Ernest, as the seventh, um, the last of the first batch, as it were, he did spend more time as a court interpreter. He arrived in 1867. He was a 21-year-old young man at that stage and spent two to three years learning Cantonese. So he comes in from England? He does. He was educated at Repton School. I can't trace that he went to university. Uh, most of his family have gone to Cambridge, but I, I, I can't trace that he did. That may have something to do because he was the fifth son of the family. His father had died when he was a very small child. And although the family was quite wealthy, there may not have been enough money to send Henry Ernest to university as well. However, he was able to take the colonial examinations. He'd actually applied for the colonial writerships in Ceylon, which were similar examinations to those that the Hong Kong cadets sat. He was second in the competitive exams and was considered to have written very good, pa- very good papers indeed. And so when the one cadetship became available in, in Hong Kong in late 1866, uh, it was offered to him. And he arrived in Hong Kong in January 1867. And when he arrives, what sort of job is he... I mean, he would later become magistrate coroner, but what job does he set out on? Well, the first thing is that he would be quartered in the schoolhouse in Gough Street, as the earlier cadets had been. Gough Street is down below Hollywood Road. And he is set to learn Cantonese. He is provided with a certain amount of money, as well as the £200 a year salary for a student interpreter and a certain amount of money to pay for a teacher and is expected to spend six to eight hours per day uh, learning the language. He was sent to Canton to improve his skills at, at some point. He would have been there by himself, which would have perhaps caused some difficulties because it was quite an isolating experience at that stage for the young men. Back in Hong Kong, he would be attending the courts, attending particularly the magistracy, just to get a a flavour of the speed of Cantonese, the level of of language he would need. In those days, the magistracy would have been at what is now the former Central Police Station complex. That's right. There was a building prior to the one we now see there, which was built in the beginning of the 20th century. And the court cases, would they have been conducted in English or Cantonese? They were conducted, they were conducted in both. So that this was why the great need for interpreters, because uh, whilst the magistrate would be 
speaking in English, then it would go through an interpreter. And normally speaking, the man or woman in the dock was replying in their own language. He went from there, uh, after he, he passed his final exams as an interpreter, he occupied quite a number of roles. At one point, he is chief clerk to the colonial office in Hong Kong. He's clerk to the courts. He's sheriff, which is a man dealing with the incoming cases in the Supreme Court. He slightly missed out. The first five of the cadets had very quickly found themselves in, in major roles, even before they were actually qualified. By the time Woodhouse comes, a, little, a couple of years later, most of the major roles are taken, and he actually spent more time actually being an interpreter. So as an interpreter, when he's at the magistrate's court, so you would have somebody in the dock accused, was it a jury system? No, it was a magistrate sitting by himself. So this is the first court, so it tries cases that are very, very, we would consider very petty indeed. Like? Stealing the ring of a baby, ring is value five cents, tying up your dog to a public railings. What's the problem there? Oh, well, you're, you're, using, you're using public space, aren't you, and, and you leave your dog. And what was the punishment? The punishment was, again, you know, a, a ten-cent fine or something like this. Was it just a revenue earner in the early days of the British government, Ian? <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of that, although you had to keep the numbers of the overcrowded jail down, so... I mean, yes, you had the, so you had the magistracy there, and then you had Victoria Prison, you'd have had the cells. Were there cells under the magistracy? No, cells directly behind the magistracy. And how many were there? Quite a lot. <laughs> quite a lot and people weren't were kept in common cells you know there wasn't a sort of cell for every prisoner by a long way oh so they would be sort of communal yes indeed yes and yes. what were the facilities like uh basic to say the least i mean unfortunately all the latrines were directly beside the magistracy the latrines of the jail were directly beside the magistracy and under, under, underneath the sleeping quarters of the police so no everything was rather higgledy-piggledy and on top of itself and smelly i'd have thought oh, absolutely <laughs> so there were, of course, big cases. There were cases of injuring and cases of murder that would then be sent up to the Supreme Court for trial. But the magistrate would, would reckon to deal with most of the cases himself. Himself, of course. This is an entirely male world, really, uh, although your defendant may not be male. They would get through, well, judging by the papers at this time, six, eight, ten cases in a day is not uncommon. And the sitting was from about ten o'clock in the morning till about four o'clock in the afternoon with a, a break for tiffin. Were people also put in the stocks? People, all sorts of punishments indeed. So the, the, there are stocks. Stocks are sometimes set up uh, at the place where the crime has been committed. So, for example, if somebody has been committed of gambling down in Ship Street in Wan Chai, uh, they have to carry their stocks down to Wan Chai, put them down, get put in them, sit there for a day, and then, then come back and serve a jail sentence <laughs> as well. So your man who's just arrived here in 1867, he's aged 21, and he's here as a court interpreter, and that's uh, Henry Ernest Woodhouse, who was the father of P.G. Woodhouse, the author. He was also the father of a senior policeman here. That's right. His son, Philip Peveril Woodhouse, was the first child born on the peak... And as such, he was given the name Peveril, his second name, because there's a Walter Scott novel called Peveril of the Peak. 
So it was the family, family's little bit of whimsy to call him by this name. He was educated in, back in the UK at Dulwich College, but then came back to Hong Kong. Henry Ernest Woodhouse uh, explained that money was always a little bit of a problem, to say the least, for, for the family. And there wasn't enough money to send him to, to university. So he's brought back to Hong Kong and his father sort of saw an opportunity for him uh, in a later version of the student interpreter scheme, which was by that time, 1890s, for local men, local British men generally, and his son was enrolled in that, but partly because he was that much older than the regulation age for that and also because he was Mr Woodhouse's son he very soon gained a better post in the courts and then was transferred had a life very much like the cadets he was transferred as assistant superintendent of the police which is where he stayed for the rest of his career returning to the father Henry Ernest Woodhouse as a, a magistrate. I mean, are all of these cases documented? How did you research them? He became a magistrate in 1881 um, on the, his return from leave. And you will find all of these cases in the papers. Sometimes the, the papers don't report cases that are thrown out and you know, where, where the defendant is uh, acquitted and... You know, shown to be not guilty. Well, that's rather boring journalism, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, it's not a story. But, um, you'll certainly get all the all, all cases uh, you know, per day under the line, under the heading of police intelligence. Um, that's what to look for in the old newspapers. Now, what have you discovered? I mean, Henry Ernest was there in the magistracy. That was his main job later on. Would he have worn a wig and gown? I think so. He would have worn certainly a robe. I'm not sure about the wig. I haven't, I haven't been able to find that out yet. He arrives here at age 21. So did he meet his wife here? He did. In the mid-1870s, he, he married Eleanor Dean. Eleanor Dean was the sister of Walter Meredith Dean, who was this, uh, also one of the early cadets and was the superintendent of the police force. Eleanor had probably come out... She was one of many... Uh, sisters that Walter Dean had and she'd probably come out with the idea of looking for a husband. That was quite an unusual thing, the, the, the whole fishing, fishing fleet idea of coming out to find your, find your husband was not so common in, in Hong Kong at that time because you know, if, if, if you were on the lookout for a husband you, could only, you only had to go as far as India Salon, you didn't have to go the, the extra sort of two and a half, three weeks journey to find, find a husband in Hong Kong. Eleanor, knowing her brother was over here, obviously did, and um, married Woodhouse. Now, what's your interest in Henry Ernest? I mean, is it his magistrate, is it his life, the fact that he's the father of this author? Yeah, I, I'm quite interested in him because he is one of a, a team of civil servants who are both connected with the ordinary people of Hong Kong with, through his work as a magistrate connected with the upper echelons of society such as it existed in Hong Kong but not actually part of that in the same way and he he and some others hold this role sort of rather above the policeman that I've been working 
working on for all these years. It's interesting to see these men actually working very hard. His day in the court might have started at 10 o'clock, but he had usually been working on reports before that. The court might finish at 4 o'clock. He then has to convene a meeting at the hospital mortuary, sort of a coroner's court. That all has to be then written up. And then there's often, when they become, as, as many of these men did, become members of the Executive Council or the Legislative Council, there's meetings later on in the day for that. The idea, you know, the old colonial idea of having this long lunch and this rather leisured life doesn't seem to hold true in those first, you know, this, this early period, this 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. Yeah, as you say, he was very hard working. Did they, so the magistracy ran from Monday to Friday? Monday to Saturday, half day on Saturday, I think it was. So, for, for example, I mean, his, his first week as magistrate, he was, had been on leave in the UK. He had left Eleanor, his wife, because she was then expecting her third baby, and so she'd stayed in England to have the, the child. He actually came back with James Russell, who had just been appointed as acting Chief Justice of Hong Kong. James Russell had actually become uh, qualified at the bar in London during his leaves, so he'd, he was one of the early cadets, and he'd gained legal qualifications for himself. He came back on the same boat as James Russell, which you can imagine, although Woodhouse would have spent much time in the courts, it was particularly useful to have six, five or six weeks or so with a qualified barrister to actually learn the job of being a magistrate. There was no training at this point for a magistrate. He was expected to just go in and know what to do. In many, many of these jobs, they really are dropped in the deep end. That's right. Uh, they have to oh, it's sink or swim, and most of them did actually swim quite well. Sometimes there was a, a tendency, I mean, you see some of his early cases, he perhaps sends them to court for, for trial at Supreme Court rather more often than was necessary. <laughs> but you, you can imagine he's feeling his way, and he doesn't quite know whether this is a case that should go, so he sends it up to the Supreme Court. In your research, did he keep a private diary? How have you learnt about him? Sadly, there doesn't seem to be any private diary or records of letters going going home. I've asked the Woodhouse family and they've, they've had a look for such things. I, I just would love to come across a cache of letters he'd sent back to Eleanor when she was back at home because she spent quite a lot of time in England away from Hong Kong but that doesn't seem to exist you know families get rid of these letters and it's such a sadness I mean this is I mean this is the case of the archives isn't it we have to be so alert to what we need to preserve and uh, in terms of his life here as a magistrate I mean did he do a full career here and then return to the UK he was a magistrate from 1881 through to the time he retired in 1898. And then he retired at the age of 53, um, back to the UK on a pension. 53 was a very normal age, slightly older than many others retired. Yes. It was a different era, and also your lifespan would have been shorter. Lifespan's shorter, and, and also it's a very enervating climate for the, the average European man um, reckoned that a man who'd done 25 years here was not really fit for very much more <laughs> certainly would go home and, and fit for only for a very sedentary sort of job <laughs> So that was due to malaria? Yes, I mean many people had ongoing malaria There was also 
it has to be remembered that both typhoid and typhoid fever were really common, really rife at the time. There's cholera going around, uh, there's dysentery, it was a huge problem. Preparation of foodstuffs was not as hygienic as it should have been by a long way. You were lucky if you got through a year without a, a trip to the hospital or two. P.G. Woodhouse's father was Henry Ernest Woodhouse, the magistrate, and coroner. So as a coroner, what was he involved in? He was, he was basically, you know, somebody would die or there would be a murder victim. I mean, has he got him out there on the slab? He has indeed. This, the coroner's job in the, this early part of Hong Kong was very busy and very grisly, I think. The number of dead bodies that would be recovered by the police in any year is is very high. I mean, sometimes the police are, are pulling in just from around the slopes and the gullies of Hong Kong. They're pulling in 16, 20 bodies a week of corpses in various states of decomposition. Now, the coroner wouldn't have become involved in all of those, but where there was a case, where there was ob- any obvious sign of um, ill treatment, might have been so. Then bodies were fished out of the harbour on a very regular basis, and those would usually involve the coroner. Um, there would have to be a question of whether it was suicide or whether it was a murder. Accidents doesn't seem to come into the equation, but uh, quite often uh, it was murder by personal persons unknown. And then, of course, he would be involved in any murder cases. Murder cases were less frequent. Direct known murders were less frequent. Um, with the with the um, ability to drop a body in Victoria Harbour, that's maybe the reason that uh, less murder victims were found. But, uh, you know, in terms of they were able to, at that stage, you're talking the 1860s, the 1870s, they'd have been able to say, yes, it was arsenic. I haven't come across that. Where it is murder, it is usually a very obvious fracture of the skull or inflicted wound or strangulation. Now, how did they keep the bodies cold? I don't think they did. This is why the coroner had to um, conduct the inquiry on the day the body was dragged out of the harbour that afternoon, and then it's uh, straight back to the mortuary and straight to burial. A very short time would elapse between the discovery of anybody and the the attention of the coroner. And And where would that have been? I mean, if you've got the magistracy in Victoria Prison and the cells and the former Central Police Station all up at the Central Police Station complex, which is obviously still there today. Although you were saying that the magistracy is, is likely the one that we see today is a more modern building. Yes. yes, that's a more modern building. But where would the coroner have been? The coroner, the coroner would have um, gone to the mortuary at uh, the civil hospital. And civil hospital does move around. I mean, at one point it is in Hollywood Road, at the Hotel de Europe building. It's what we now think of as the administration building of the police station. Those were tenements and, and hotel buildings in the earlier period and were, were knocked down for the administration building in the 1920s. But as a coroner, I mean, did he have any medical training? Did he know which bits were what? I mean, how do you suddenly spring into being what is really forensics? I, I don't think really that the coroner's job was a forensic job in that sense. I mean, he, he's, he would be working always with the surgeon, usually with the colonial surgeon, sometimes with a, a doctor from the hospital. So it was taking the report of the, the doctor and making a, a judgment based on sound common sense. I think a lot of both the, the law and the job as a coroner was the application of common sense to the situation of, and, and saying what was in all probability the most likely event. My thanks to Patricia O'Sullivan talking there on the life of Magistrate George Ernest Woodhouse.
And now, it's Hong Kong Heritage Question Time from Gulo.com. Well, last week we were hearing from David Bellis of Gulo.com about a 1956 photo taken of the St. John's Cathedral Choir. Did you get anywhere with that? We got a couple of responses. Somebody did send in a couple more names, so that's good news. And I also got a gentle slap on the wrist from Patricia O'Sullivan, who I'd forgotten, sings in the choir here from time to time. And she told me what we should be talking about are things like setting of the parts of the service, Kyrie, Gloria, etc., uh, one of the Psalms, perhaps, and an anthem by Wesley. I think, I think, no amazing grace. So I apologise to any choristers who are listening to the last show. Yes, an anthem by Wesley would be suitable. Don't know what any of that means, but I'm, I'm <laughs> happy to bow to Patricia's superior knowledge. So, have you got a new question for this week? Indeed, we have. This one comes from a well-known local historian, Christopher Munn. He's working on a, a project about the history of the Hong Kong judiciary, and he's looking for photos. Now, he's working with. Uh, Tim Co, Tim Co, another well-known name. So you can imagine they've looked in all the usual places. So they're hoping that maybe you've got a family album or something tucked away that that you can share. He says pictures of judges, magistrates, lawyers, um, sketches, paintings, cartoons, anything to do with the history of the courts. And the one that they're really having trouble with is finding views of interiors of courtrooms. And he does say this may be due to the fact that since 1949 it's been illegal to take a photo or a sketch of an interior of a courtroom. So if anyone's got it, you can send it in a brown paper envelope. It'll be our little secret where it came from. <laughs> but we'd love to hear about uh, any material for that. So you want interior of courtrooms, judges, anything to do with uh, court cases? That's for historian Christopher Munn. He also co-wrote, among many other things, Christopher's actually uh, co-wrote a, a book on the historical biographies of Hong Kong people. If people do have any photos or they'd like to get in touch with you at uh, gulo.com, what's the email address, David? So David at gulo, G-W-U-L-O dot com. I've just come down a path with David Bellis. Where are we actually standing? We're at the top of Hong Kong U campus just the top of University Drive where it comes out onto Hatton Road, Conduit Road, up that area. And in front of us is a thing of beauty. <laughs> a rusty tank. <laughs> well, you might say a rusty tank. I'll say a thing of beauty. Uh, I've walked past it for the last few years and we popped pictures of it up onto the websites about three years ago. Nothing happened. And then just recently, we've seen another picture. And this is from the Historical Photos of Hong Kong Project, which is run by the Bristol University. It's a photo from someone here in 1945, and they're looking out down over the, the campus. So you can tell it's just after the war. The main buildings of Hong Kong U are missing their roof. That was all looted. But down in the foreground is this little octagon-shaped roof. And I thought, hang on, that's my rusty old iron tank. <laughs> so it's been here since 45 at least. So I came back and thought, oh, let's, let's take a closer look. So if we can just walk over, I'll show you. So it's a hefty great thing. Eight sides, all made of cast iron. And on one of them, one of the sides has got a B-O and a sort of a curvy arrow in between. And uh, B-O obviously has a different meaning these days, but in the, in the 1800s, this was a board of ordnance mark. So the board of ordnance were the organisation that looked after um, all the requirements of the army and the navy. So this goes back to the 19th century? Apparently, yes. The board of ordnance was sort of dis dissolved in 1855. So if this is really made by them, yes, it's older than 1855, which is quite remarkable. What is it? It's a rusty old iron water tank. I mean, it, it is what, what it looks like. It, it's just an old iron water tank. You've got uh, a bunch of people have been helping. Uh, Stephen Davis here at Hong Kong U, a fount of all sorts of knowledge. He said, well, 
First of all, you've got to convince me that this is something that the British Army used. Because the Army didn't go in for one-offs. If this is something that they used, there should be other examples. And he found one very similar in South Africa. And the person who wrote about that tank says there are several more. So, OK, we think there's a good chance. So now I need your help to take some measurements. We want to see, do the measurements of the panels match up with the South African one? And if they do, then, OK, we're quite convinced that we're onto a, a genuine army tank. So the subsector of your uh, ingrulo.com will be rusty tanks of the world? <laughs> I think this is a niche market that has been <laughs> grossly undervalued, yes, and it's going to be mine or mine. <laughs> OK, let's measure. Right out. You can take one end of the, okay. the tank. OK, I've got one end of the tank. So over here on this wall? Um, to the, yeah, to the edge of the panel. Okay, so we're 212 cm wide, just under seven foot. And we'll just measure how tall it is. Sorry, just hang on a sec, I'll jot that down. So were you also on the cusp of decimalization? <laughs> I was. I can remember yards, and, yeah, I can just about remember doing those calculations. I was very happy when decimals came in. <laughs> so we're now doing the vertical? Yeah. So we are about 80 cm high. So if it was used as a water tank for the British Army, uh, I mean, we're, we're actually on, you know, as you say, on the premises now of the University of Hong Kong. So this water tank would have been serving whom? Aha, walk this way. Right. If you peer between the trees, can yeah. you see a large green gun barrel? Oh, just about. Just about. So where the lodge is now, that was the site of the Victoria gun battery. So our first idea was, OK, that's easy, solved. It was built for the Victoria gun battery, except one of our readers from Australia sent in a map, a plan of the battery in 1890, and there's no sign of the water tank. So now, and this is about as far as we've got to, it's, well, when was the tank put here? Um, what was it for? So current guess is maybe it was to do with the university. We've got some people talking to their records department, see if they can find out. Maybe it was put here during wartime. The water situation during the war was very bad. When they ran out of electricity, they didn't have the, the pump to pump the water around. And just a few feet above us is the old conduit, which gives its name to Conduit Road. So you could imagine that maybe when the pumps were on, they'd have water come down and flow into the tank, and then this would be the, the temporary store for a while. We're guessing. So again, a call out to listeners anyone happens to be an expert in rusty old iron tanks and can give us any clues that would be great or perhaps more likely if anyone lived around here and has got photos out over the campus from before 1945 that'll help us trace back how long it's been here my my next project is to look at the old aerial photos that were taken in 1924 so i've got a couple of those on order and uh, then it'll be out with a magnifying glass and see if we can spot it from then well, do come back to us. I'm hoping that some of the listeners can find. So if you've got pre-45 photographs of uh, the Hong Kong University campus, that would be great. But any ideas on this rusty water tank here in the grounds of Hong Kong U? Um, so just to get the date, so it's made of iron and the Board of Ordnance was created in 1855. No, dissolved. So it's apparently older than 1855. But it may not have been here all that time. Exactly. So we think it probably came here with some other site in Hong Kong and has then been moved here. So if anyone's seen a, a tank like this, it's eight-sided, you know, quite hefty, that may be another military site around. But I'm staring at something that's probably about 170 years old. Remarkable, isn't it? Yes. yes. And uh, But it could have even, if it was used here for the Second World War, then it was being moved uh, nearly a century old. Yes. So it, 
it, it's obviously got a very interesting history and that's what we're trying to, to dig up. And where would the iron have been made? Probably from a British foundry, I suppose. It could be from, from Britain. Can you do, you know, like you can take, you know, you can do a, a date test on a brick in a bi- uh, on a building, for example, to say how old it is, or guesstimate at least. Um, can you actually test iron? I don't know. You'd imagine that the techniques they've used to make iron has changed over the years so therefore the consistency of what's in there so sounds sensible there's a actually a oh, i thought it was bamboo but i've realized is actually metal there's a a little ladder that uh, goes up uh, the outside are you going to have a poke around in there i have to admit i did climb up the ladder and have poked my head inside <laughs> <laughs> and it's just empty it's empty yes but you can see a, a couple of rusty water pipes coming past here as well so it's- this would have been connected to the surrounding area on a pipe must have been yes and then the water flowing down to to buildings below us. So that's this week's mystery. David Bellis there. If you have any answers to David's questions, then please email him at david at gulo.com. Next week, I head to Pockfalam Village for a bit of turnip cake made from turnips pulled fresh out of the ground at a village get-together that keeps the cooking and tea traditions alive. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. The MPF Default Investment Strategy, or DIS, will be launched on April 1st, 2017. Key features are automatic reduction of investment risk according to MPF scheme members' age, fee caps, and globally diversified investment. The DIS involves changes to MPF legislation, which may affect your MPF account. Please read the notice sent by your trustee. Call the MPFA at 2918-0102 for inquiries. The government has expanded the scope of the vaccination subsidy scheme and raised the seasonal flu vaccine subsidy to $190 per dose. Pregnant women, elderly people aged 65 years or above, children aged 6 months to under 12 years, persons with intellectual disability and disability allowance recipients can get a subsidized vaccination from enrolled private doctors. For details, please call the Department of Health hotline on 2125-2125. Now on Radio 3, Samuel West continues reading from Graham Greene's classic thriller, The Third Man. Today, Rollo Martins is desperate to clear Harry Lyme's name, but the web of lies surrounding his old friend's death is growing even more intricate. After two drinks, Rollo Martins' mind would always turn towards women. After three drinks like a pilot who dives to find direction, he would begin to focus on one available girl. If he had not been offered a third drink by Kula, he would probably not have gone quite so soon to Anna Schmidt's house. It was nearly five o'clock when he reached Kula's flat, which was over an ice cream parlour in the American zone. His warm, frank handclasp was the most friendly act that Martins had encountered in Vienna. Any friend of Harry is all right with me, Kula said. I wondered, uh, you were there, weren't you, if you'd tell me about Harry's death. It was a terrible thing. I was just crossing the road to go to Harry. He and Mr. Kurtz were on the sidewalk. He saw me and stepped straight off to meet me in this jeep. He didn't stand a chance. Have a scotch, Mr. Martins. Was the other man in the car? 
Cooler took a long pull and then measured what was left with his tired, kindly eyes. What man would you be referring to, Mr. Martins? I was told there was another man there. There were just the three of us, me and Mr. Kurtz and the driver. The doctor, of course. I, I expect you were thinking of the doctor. Oh, this man I was talking to happened to look out of a window. He has the next flat to Harry's, and he said he saw three men and the driver. That's before the doctor arrived.